Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we've seen Apocalypse Now, The Final Cut. It's the second sort of redone, re-released version of Apocalypse Now, 40 years old. Came out in 1979 originally. And I saw it when it first came out. Because you're old. Because I'm old. Because you're as uh, old as Lawrence Fishburne. I am. <laughs> um, you were 17 at the time. That's right. Um, and in 2001, it was re-released uh, as Apocalypse Now Redux, which included 49 minutes of material that wasn't in the original cut. Yes. Um, which was, uh, I don't know exactly the details, but largely there was this French plantation scene, mm. or sequence, or kind of set of scenes, um, that were not uh, in the original. You, mm. you, So you watching this one, going, what's going on here? <laughs> I, I, I also saw the Redux one. Oh, did so, you? Yeah. So I've seen this several times now. I've seen, I've seen all versions. But the way that memory works, I mean, unless we saw all the versions, you mm. know, side by side, I just can't remember, you know, what was in the Redux yeah, yeah. and what was, you know, in the, the... But what I did remember is um, I didn't... I didn't remember anything about the French plantation. Uh, so, you know, that was kind of... That that took me by surprise. Uh, this time around, though I'm sure it, probably there were sections of it in the, in the Redux one, but I'd somehow erased it from memory, which is interesting. And the other thing that struck me, watching it again, and again, maybe it's memory playing tricks on you, but I didn't realize that the Marlon Brando part was so short. Mm. You know, and I think maybe when you add 49 minutes, it it changes the balance because, oh, well, yeah. you know, he seemed to he seemed to occupy a much larger role in my memory of the original anyway than than, you know, his allotted screen time mm. does here. Though, of course, you know, he's set up from the very beginning as a search for him. You see pictures of him, yeah. you know, and all of that. But but it did strike me how little screen time he had. Well, this version is shorter than the Redux. Uh, about 20 minutes of footage has been cut right. from the Redux. So this version is three hours pretty much on the mark. Um, actually, I, it's, well, it started at 1.52 and it finished at uh, 4.40 something. So mm. a little bit less than three hours. I think they're including credits and stuff mm. in that number. Um, Did it feel long to you? Uh, I, I mean, it did. You know, you could tell it's a big old movie, and, yeah. and uh, it kind of it, it it moves sort of moves kind of slowly, I suppose. But um, it didn't to me. Did move slowly? No, I I looked at my watch only once, and that was not because I was bored or anything. It was more to get a sense of how much time there was left, if you know what I mean. I did the same thing, and and for the same reason, yeah. I I didn't check my watch to see. You know, going, oh god, this is going on a bit. But I just wanted to get a sense of where the film was. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd never seen it before. You've seen it a number of times. Yes. I think this is probably my, well, only my fourth time, you know, because, I mean, there are films that you study properly and you watch 20, 30, 40 times. Hmm. This one I haven't, right? Like, you know, I have just seen it like maybe, you know, four yeah. times or something. Um, I'm aware of its reputation, though, and I'm aware of, of uh, the sort of. The parts of it that have become um, sort of canonically sort of cultural sort of icons, you know, the the ride of the Valkyries in the helicopters, the the use of the doors at the start uh, and end, um, 
the horror, the horror, you know, everything that, that Brando mm. sort of gets up to. Um, and the general and, and also the thing of it being based on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, a novel from the early 1900s, mm. I think, maybe late 1800s. Um, Can we pause a little bit just to talk about, you know, those opening sequences and the Valkyrie sequence and so on? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, the first half hour or so. Because, you know, one of the things that has changed for me is just, you know, I know how to see films better and how to see films in different ways, right? Mm. And one of the things that I just found absolutely gobsmackingly great watching it this time around was just those sequences. And actually, almost, you know, on a technical level alone, they're astonishing, right? You know, those helicopters, cows going up, fires spreading on the, you know, the sidelines, surfers, right? And you have, like, these big white shots where there's all of these things being coordinated at the same time. And you just think, oh, my God, this is, like, this is just, like, a, a genius, really. Like, you know, it, it, I found it absolutely gobsmackingly great. Yeah, yeah there's just, an incredible sort of orchestration of everything that's going on yeah. in that. Um, massive production. Massive production. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, so much going on. Also, I think with a great narrative clarity, you know why you're looking at what and what the effect of it is supposed to be. But just the coordination of the various elements, I, I, I really, my jaw was open in a way that it hadn't been before. That you kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know why, why I, I think I just didn't appreciate those elements before, right? Like, you know, the, it's the movies... Everything is possible in the movies when you're a 17 year old, you know, and, and not too highly educated visually. You just don't notice those those things. But actually, I, I, I really was gobsmacked. Yeah, it's kind of extraordinary. And, and it would be too much to say you don't see things like it these days. But um, you don't you, you don't, don't feel like you th- see things like it. you don't feel like you feel things like it. Like, I mean, obviously, there is no CGI in those days and all that sort of stuff yeah. like everything everything being done for real people people do talk about you know well real stuff's better than CGI an awful lot and I think too much you know that um, it's kind of a fashionable thing to say on the other hand you can't deny the sort of the benefit of of as you say the, the scale the feeling of the size of the production everything how how extraordinary sort of the, the you know, as you say, sort of fires in the background. They're shooting at the right at the right time of day, yeah. so all the light is perfect. Helicopters, people, you know, explosions going off. Robert Duval not moving. Oh, I mean, his performance. How do you not move when this explosion's going off? I know he's fantastic. <laughs> uh, it's, it's kind of amazing. Um, this, here's something that struck me, which is not the feeling that the film left you with at the end, because the tone really changes. But something that I was very surprised by in those early scenes mm. is I did not expect the film to be as funny as it was. Oh, I, yeah. There are real laughs, and it's a dark humour. It's a yeah. humour that comes out of absurdity of oh, situation war. and character. Yeah. Um, but you know, so th- so for instance, Robert Duvall's character, who is this uh, sort of ten gallon hat wearing sort of all American. Um, sort of parody of, you know, kind of kick-ass, yeah. we're going to go over there and fuck them up yeah. type, uh, type sort of general. And, you know, he, he has he orchestrates his war, so he plays Rider the Valkyries on the helicopters to scare the Viet Cong coming in. Although there is an element of that where I thought, you know, probably from that far away, they probably can't hear it. It's more for them, in a way. Yeah, like, yeah. it's theatrics. Yeah. You know? um, and... And then in the middle of the in the middle of this uh, attack, this the napalm, and he's uh, napalming this, this sort of beach, this little coastal village, um... He has people surfing. He says, if I say this beach is safe to surf, it's safe to surf. I know. 
and there and, are bombs dropping all around the surfers. Yeah, right. And they couldn't um, quite work out why he was doing that. There was something about splitting them off left and right. I don't know. Exactly. Well, the reason why is because the character played by Sam Bottoms is you know one of the surfing California surfing legends, and he wants him to surf. Right, he wants to see him surf. He says it's an honor to meet you and all of that. Right, yeah. so you know he orders his own soldiers to go surf. But the idea is that Sam Bottoms would join him, and actually the other guys rescue him. Right, right. <clears throat> so kind of you sure. know um, that's the motivation. But you're right. It but it's is, very funny. It's very it's funny. funny. It's very very funny, and it's. I mean, they were genuine laughs. I don't think. I don't think most of it was a very very full audience. We should say this was at the electric. I think cinema. it was. A, I think it was. I would have said even sold out, really. It wasn't quite so. I definitely... Because I turned around right at the end. So unless people left, yeah. I saw a couple of empty seats, but extremely full. Yeah. yeah as near as to sold out, as sort of makes no difference. Um, and, you know, I don't think the film was getting laughs all round. We were definitely laughing. <laughs> well, I, I mean, the, I, was, I, I, I found those things as funny as you did. And also, I was surprised. There were moments in the film where I was really startled. Like, you know, where I reeled back from the image, right? Either through horror or surprise or whatever. And that also surprised me. Yeah, when they're going, when when they're on the boat going through the jungle, probably an hour and a half into the film, and and it's all very quiet and calm and nothing's really happening, and then a shot comes from out of the background, out of the jungle towards the camera, Mm. and you you went, oh, in your your way. (laughs) Which was lovely. So it was very, the film really worked on me. And I think seeing it this time, if anything, my appreciation of it is enhanced, right? All of the opening sequences, it's almost a model of what 1970s narrative cinema learned from the avant-garde, right? Mm. I mean, to see that kind of opening, which is all associative images, which is kind of symbolic, which is images melding onto each other. You have no clear sense of, of space, really, or, or of time, yeah? Kind of, um, I thought that was, you know, it's kind of yeah. daring, so daring to, to begin the film, you know, in that way, really. It's uh, not quite <clears throat> abstracted imagery. You know what you're looking at, but it's yeah. things like palm trees in silhouette, you know, helicopter flying across, but it's, it, it's like bits of imagery are taken and then faded on top of one another, and underneath it all is Martin Sheen lying upside nuts. down. <laughs> yeah. And it's and it's I think it's kind of clear, or at least it was clear to me, this is this is his sort Well it's not clear it's not clear exactly. It could be his memory or it could be his imagination or it could be his dream. And you think you kinda of later look what well, once he wakes up in the hotel room, yeah. you get that it's this is that this is him remembering He's got post traumatic stress syndrome. His really. previous tour of Vietnam. Yeah. So um and so that kind of you know any I think you know just to 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 use those techniques in a mainstream big budget Hollywood spectacular to begin that way is an indication of kind of what was possible in the seventies that really no no longer I don't know if it's no longer possible but it's certainly no longer seen so you know that really struck me what really struck me as well I mean this has to be one of the most beautiful films of all time right like. Yeah. You know, the lighting, the cinematography, the symbolic use of light, you know, the way that everything seems shot at either dusk or dawn, right? So there's a continuity of the imagery. But you have like these, you know, this fantastic wide screen where you can see those gradations of light throughout, you know, and then these bold choices 
of having like kind of key lighting, which, you know, so only like a bit of a face is illuminated, right? Mm. So you go from one to the other. It's just absolutely beautiful. Like Vittorio Storaro, like, you know, I, I mean, he's a genius. This is a, an, a great film, uh, you know, um, and it's not just like kind of pretty images, right? Kind of the full horror of war is evoked and these kind of incredibly white shot white shots where you see bodies dangling and limbs and you know and on the other hand you have like this the incredibly beautiful sunsets or the river or you know mm. it is really kind of an evocation of the sublime of that which fills you with both awe and terror you know it's exactly what i was going to say yeah basically uh, that the, the shot very there's one shot early on actually a couple of napalm napalm bombing runs mm. and a plane flies over and the forest just ignites yes. in a row of, of yeah. flame. God, it's it's terrifying, really. Yes. Um, you know the way the way that a character will be bathed in silhouette, as you say, with that with maybe just one light, mm. sort of from behind, illuminating the side of their face. We talk about great entrances recently. Um, Marlon Brando's here. I mean, as, as you say, obviously he's got he's got two and a half hours of build up. Yes, it's like the third man. You know, they just yeah. keep talking about this guy, yeah, and then yeah. he finally shows up out of the shadows, but nowhere near as quickly as Orson Welles does in the third man. Yeah. I mean, he takes his time coming out of the shadows. You see the top of his head. Yeah. You see just his nose. He you kind of puts his, his puts his face in his hands. He takes yeah. a long time to come out of the shadows. Yeah. It's incredible. So engrossing. Yeah, it's beautiful. And uh, theoret- I mean, ostensibly, it was all done because Marlon Brando had gotten so fat mm. that. They couldn't use his full body, right? Yeah, they, so they do have his full body when he's wearing in that pajamas, and actually creates a very striking uh, image, a very striking silhouette with those pajamas, right? Yeah. And actually, you know, when he walks out, you know, the 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 bottom, they're a bit bell bottomy, so it creates like this very fluid movement, really, which is very kind of striking to see. But it's used. I mean, I think that's the only full shot like full body mm. shot of him and it's done you know in silhouette right so he's in darkness really so there's light behind him yeah which enshadows him it's like it's- Jaws where in Jaws they, the, the shark was rubbish so they couldn't shoot it very much because it looked terrible and yeah. the film was much better because of it well <laughs> <laughs> let's not push the analogy because Brando is is great you know uh, so you know those those few minutes he's on uh, it's incredibly effective, and he's given a great entrance. Actually, I think everybody, everybody in it, is um, you know very effective. I mean, people talk about Harrison Ford; it's an early role for him, uh, and he's not given anything particularly to do, so he doesn't make much of an impression. The impression on us now is just how young he was. Yeah. Oh, that's like, Harrison Ford. Yeah, kind of looking like a teenager, really. You know, mm. and so so slim. Um, Mind you, it's after Star Wars. Star Wars was seventy seven, and you know we remember him very well from that. Yeah, so it's true. Um, uh, so maybe we just forget it because he's, as you say, not in this very much. It's a small role. It's a small role. Um, but also, the thing about uh, uh, Harrison Ford in Star Wars is, you know, he's meant to be funny, and also he's in constant motion. Mm. Whereas, you know, so you see his body in motion, and he's very. You know, there's a thing about action stars, like most of them move incredibly well. That's what makes them action stars. And this, you know, he's given here nothing to do except say a few bits of dialogue, yeah, right? Yeah. So it makes a different kind of impression. But what I was going to say is that for people of my generation, seeing people like, you know, Scott Glenn and 
Sam Bottoms, right? Who's, you know, the lovely surfer who puts the arrow in his head. Yeah, mm. and who's stoned all the time. Uh, or uh, Frederick uh, um, uh, Forrest. Uh, you know, it kind of evokes that whole era of cinema. These are, these are all people who were about to be stars, who actually starred or were leading men in some key films, like, you know, The Rose and, and things like that, but who never quite made it, right? Mm. You know, so who haven't quite disappeared from view, uh, but... Uh, they are but, stuck in that era, though, for you. But. Yeah, for me, they are, you yeah. know. I mean, that was kind of like the height of their, of their fame and achievements, really. Mm. And speaking of that, I think it's worth <clears> saying, <throat> you know, just how extraordinary uh, Coppola's career in the 70s is, because, you know, you have The Godfather, you have Godfather 2, you have The Conversation, and you have this, right? And that's just four masterpieces right there, right? Like... Mm. You know, uh, um, you know, four films that are amongst the greatest that kind of American cinema has ever produced, and that still continue to be seen and studied and thought about and re-released, right? Uh, so you know, and kind of in mm -hmm. dealing really with almost all aspects of kind of film form. So the conversation, <clears throat> you know, the use of sound in the conversation, for example, and so on, and really quite brilliant here as well, you know. So I remember, like, when the film was released, uh, um, it was one of a spate of films dealing with the Vietnam War that were released around the same time. I think, I think Coming Home, maybe, was 1978. But then there was The Deer Hunter, you know, maybe mm -hmm. also around that time. The Deer Hunter might be 77, Coming Home, 78, and this, 79. Deer Hunter, 78. Yeah, okay. Yep. So, you know, uh, uh, they came around the same time, and I remember actually because both the Deer Hunter and this film, they had like a special price. So I think if the normal uh, ticket was $5 for, you know, a normal first release in a big cinema, these were seven. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so they were more expensive to go see uh, than normal films. And part of the attraction of this was the helicopter sound. So they, I. I don't know whether it was a Dolby system that they had, um, but you know the, the the part of of paying of the advertisements for paying that price is that they had a special sound system. So when you heard the helicopters, you heard them come from behind, right? Yeah, from, uh, from the back of the cinema. Um, I'm seeing if I can find information for, just from sort of personal luck. I think this was around the time that surround systems were starting or to be starting, developed. yeah. So look it up, actually. Um, Post-production be... and audio. This is on Wikipedia. Let's have a quick look. Uh, Merch, Walter Merch says, uh, had problems trying to make a stereo soundtrack for Apocalypse Now because sound libraries had no stereo recordings of weapons. There's Dolby Stereo 6 track. Yeah, Dolby Stereo 70mm 6 track system for the 70mm mm. release. Yes. This used two channels of sound from behind the audience as well as three of sound from behind the movie screen. Yes. The 35mm release used the new Dolby Stereo optical stereo system, but due to the limitations of the technology at the time, this 35mm release that played in the majority of theatres did not include any surround sound. Well, so 70mm surround sound. I heard, so I saw it on 70mm with surround sound, and that, because I still remember the, the startling effect of, you know, feeling like the helicopters coming from behind you, right? Which was mm. just amazing, really. Yeah. Um, so, so... You know, a kind of, a, it's a film that uses like kind of full resources and then it does 
you know, such beautiful things with smoke and light and shadow. So, you know, those scenes where, um, well, there's a whole bunch of scenes that I think are just amazing. You know, the scene with the bunnies, right? Yeah, the go-go girls. The oh, right, right, the playboy bunnies. Troops. I thought you meant rabbits. No. <laughs> the playboy bunnies, yeah. yeah. When you, you have the rockets, all the phallic rockets, and, you know, kind of uh, the, the women come to dance, and all, they all have guns, and then there's a loss of control, you know, and you really get the sense of, like, these poor young boys, you know, who've been, like, who are, who are there to die and who are deprived of any kind of intimacy. And then, like, it all bursts out in a flood of aggression, right? Or, mm. of like, desire as aggression. It's, it's an incredible It's quite scene. striking that... And it's not foregrounded. It's not, like, close-up or anything. But it's quite striking that there's barbed wire separating them from the stage. Yes. I noticed. Yes. Like, this sort of... This sort of they're there to be entertained and to be turned on by these girls, but there's this sort of... Yeah, kind of violent barrier. And then the image, you know, as the helicopter moves up and everything looks hollowed out and empty and it's like this 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 sadness that kind of is conveyed by the image and the sound, right? You mm. know, kind of uh, as the helicopter leaves. I think that's beautiful. Um, there, there are moments where, you know, Martin Sheen's face, it's like, you know, you see it, it it's... It, it comes into view and then the darkness obscures it again, you know, and then the fog comes in and then, like, his face is revealed again. You know, I thought all of that was, like, mm. really beautiful. It really struck me in the plantation scene where um, he uh, gets together with the girl who lives there, yeah. the daughter, I guess, and um, she closes the sort of semi, the, the, the translucent curtains around the four-poster bed that she puts him up in. Mm. And she uh, takes her clothes off and through the curtain he touches her and fondles her and touches her face. Mm. And so she she becomes this, and she has been on the bed with him, so like, but, it, but through the curtain she becomes this ghost, mm. dreamlike figure. Mm. I, just, I find that incredibly beautiful. Like it's, he, he, the only way he really touches her, certainly once she's naked for him, is distanced, mm. you know, and I thought you would love that because you love a bit of uh, gauze and yeah. semi-transparent. Well, I mean, it, w- it was. I mean, he is a genius with light, Vittorio Storaro. There's no other way. You see this film properly, and you know you can't help but notice that, right? Because it's not just that he's creating a pretty image; he's creating an expressive image and one that narrates and contributes to the story, mm. right? But he is doing it, or he and Coppola are doing it through the use of light. It's just absolutely beautiful. And actually, I think it must have been particularly difficult to maintain a constancy of that light from shot to shot. Yeah. Right, you know, because, you know, the light creates a world in this film and it's a consistent world, right? And so, you know, kind of shooting exteriors and then interiors and then on the river and on the land. And on location. Yeah, and on location with a million things blowing up in the frame at each point. And yet, you know, to create that light, that effect of light and color, mm. you know, is 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 just amazing to me. Um, I, and it's also expressive uh, of um, Martin Sheen's character, Willard. Um, because it's, it, it's, it's not so much foreshadowed as actually foregrounded throughout the film, a similarity between him and Kurt. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, right, in fact, not even through lighting, you know, right at the very start when you first see him after, or at least after he's woken up um, uh, in that room in, sh- in uh, Saigon, 
and he just sort of goes a bit crazy, takes his clothes off, punches a mirror. Mm. It, um, you know, this madness is sort of inherent in him right from the start. Mm. So it's not like, or will he eventually turn into Kurtz? Mm. He, it's got him in it from the start. Yes. You know, and they talk about uh, um, with the um, with Kilgore, the um, what's his name character? I believe, uh, um, the Robert Duval. Robert Duval mm. character. Thank you. Um, you know, I mean, the, they literally talk about him being insane on yeah. the beach, the way he behaves, and actually so insane that they kind of get away from him. But then in the voiceover, Willard says. You know, how can Kurtz have gone insane? There's plenty of insanity to go around. Mm. Um, and, but it's also then done through the lighting, you know, so th- there's one of the... You get a lot of uh, photographs in sort of dossiers of Kurtz and they're photographs of Marlon Brando. Um, but there's one in particular that he finds a little bit later or he sent a little bit later, which is of Kurtz completely in silhouette and you don't see him at all. Like, it's mm. what Kurtz looks like. What Kurtz looks like now because all those previous photos are Kurtz from, you know, when he was in the Air Force and all that mm. sort of stuff. And this one is in his in silhouette, and he's being lit from behind. And then uh, I think it's it, it might be in that scene, or maybe a, 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 a scene that quickly follows. Um, as the scene fades on uh, Martin Sheen, fades to black, but it does so giving him that same mm. halo, you know. So mm. it does, and then right at the end, it through the lighting, it turns them into the same people exactly, you know. The, uh, and he ends up completely in silhouette at one point. In fact, it's quite. It, I mean, I thought it was fantastic. So bold that when he's um, uh, infiltrating the temple right at the end to uh, assassinate Kurtz, mm. you see him from this low angle. A lot of low angles in the film, making people look very powerful and all the rest. Um, you see him from this low angle stalking through the temple, and he's well lit. And then you cut to Kurt, who yeah, is kind of typing away. And he turns around and notices him. And what Kurt sees, he is completely in silhouette when you come back to Martin Sheen. You know, so the same background, but now no light at the front yeah. to show him what he's completely silhouetted. Yes. What a fantastic, bold decision. Yes. And an incredible, incredible visual. Yeah. You know. It's so beautiful. And then I think thematically, you know, the film is also beautifully structured. So obviously, you know, they start off on this mission and you see all the interplay between the characters and, you know, you see their interrelationships. And, you know, as the film, as they, as they go upriver on the boat uh, from Vietnam towards Cambodia, the, the horror begins to be overlaid. So, you know, you're, the initial thing that you see is really all of this helicopters bombing what turns out to be a school. Right, and you get the full sense of horror of the teachers, you know, trying to hide the children, and you know all these innocent people, kind of um, getting killed. Uh, then there's the incident with the puppy in the boat, mm. right, where you know, kind of, they're all going crazy, right? They're all about to snap, and that's why, kind of, you know, they, yeah, they do things like that. Kind of, they're so afraid that they overreact, right? So that that scene of killing all the people on the boat. It's shown mm. to be like almost like an accident, yeah. Well, it's Lawrence Fishburne's character, Lance, I think his name is, who out, he's on the machine gun and out of nervousness, yes, because um, everyone just starts yapping at each other, but they're not sort of getting fighty. But he just out of nervousness shoots everyone, yeah. and and then just doesn't stop. I mean, what you know, very very quickly, he he has got them all down, yeah. and he just shoots and shoots and shoots until um, he's out of bullets, yeah. Yeah, and it's very clear he's out bullets, and he slams the thing shut, and it's like, yeah, I'm good, but he's not good. Yeah, well, he just killed, like, yeah. you know, 20 people or whatever. Um, so, um, 
you know, so so the horror keeps progressing and getting worse and worse, you know, as um, they go uh, up the river. Uh, and then it takes a while for them to be personally affected, you know, so it takes a while for uh, the Lawrence Fishburne character to be killed, you know, and then um, the captain of... Chief. The, yeah. Uh, uh, the, the, the captain of the boat. Uh, and eventually... Uh, the Forrest Tucker character, who's a chef from New Orleans. Not Forrest Tucker. Um, what's his name? Something Forrest. I forget. Uh, Frederick Forrest. Frederick sorry. Forrest. Yeah, uh, yeah he's, he's called chef. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, they, they finally begin to be affected until that moment, which is just so incredibly visually dazzling, where they arrive at Kurtz's camp or whatever you call mm. it, right? And there are like victims of torture hanging from trees over the water and bodies and limbs and heads and displayed, heads, um, you know. And then that's when Dennis Hopper appears, you know. And actually in the first sequences he's in, I thought, oh my God, this is much better than I remember him. Because, you know, you remember Dennis Hopper in those scenes being Dennis Hopper, which <laughs> is, you know, being high and speaking too fast and, yeah, kind mm. of a man, right? You know, those kinds of things. But actually, I found them surprisingly effective. Uh, you know, I think, I don't know if my memory is wrong or if I, um, or if it had a different effect on me when I was younger. But I thought it was surprisingly effective in the earlier scenes. And then some of those sheen, scenes which were shot through the bamboo, right? Like, yeah, in, you know, in the little jail cell. Yeah, I thought those were, all, you know, that was also kind of little mini lessons in, in, in acting. Because, you know, there's no possibility of movement with, within that tight kind of framing mm. through the bamboo, right? Uh, so I thought kind of, you know, that was... Uh, he, 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 he jars a bit, but he brings a, a burst of energy, I think, right? Um, and kind of becomes part of a different kind of craziness around what you are seeing. Is the film doing a sort of Manson thing? Not with him exactly, but the the film um, brings up Manson briefly at one point. Yes. Um, it shows the newspaper his his that famous photo of Manson on the cover, and you know uh, this is so the Tate murders. You see the headline, mm. um, and when you get to Kurtz's camp, he's a god. You know, they talk about these are his children, and Manson mm. had a family, and and I mean that is obviously uh, that's a huge stretch, but there's also uh, the Dennis Hopper character kind of embodying that certain kind of hippie spirit, and this yeah. guy's a genius man, and you should listen to his teachings. Mm. So it's not, it's not. This, I'm not saying you know um, that they are making Kurtz into Charles Manson. I'm, I'm not saying that with any real degree of sort of gravity. But is it building on that idea slightly? Do you think? Well, more than slightly, and I think it does so in different ways. So I mean, I agree with what you say. So you are meant to see Kurtz as a similar kind of charismatic, you know... Uh, Crazy person. At least for a moment, <laughs> right? Because I think the character is much more complex than that. Mm. But I think what you're also meant to be thinking is, you know, here is this person who's condemned, yeah, in America, and who, in fact, I... You know, my understanding is that he hadn't killed... He hadn't personally killed anybody. Whereas each of the men that you've just seen... Right, has just killed like 30 people and some of them completely unethically. They, they weren't in danger, you know, it was an accident or they were just nervous or, 
right? Mm. Like after it, that um, thingy shooting, the when Lawrence Fishburne shoots those people, Martin Sheen finishes off the woman in cold blood. That's right. You know. You know. So basically, the state is making these very very young men young and vulnerable. And you know what's lovely about the film is you get all of the views like. So the chef is in love with this, you know, with this woman back home and trying to maintain a relationship with her, you know, and really doesn't want to be there, right? Uh, the Lawrence Fishburne character, you know, he gets a tape from his mom where, you know, she's talking about how they're going to buy him a car and they're all saving up and they all kind of really... And, and you get a sense of what their lives are elsewhere, right? So they're forced to be there. They've been drafted, right? Mm-hmm. And they've been turned into killers. So everything that American culture condemns in its citizens is what it turns its citizens into when it drafts them into soldiers. So I think that that's also part hmm. of, you know, kind of the way that that image of Manson refracts. So it's not just on Kurtz or Willard. It's also on all of the other kids. Hmm. Hmm. What a great reading. I, I was just bringing it up because I noticed it. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, um, we might be wrong. But anyway, that's the way it struck me. Uh, you know, it it did have that effect. I think it's very kind of um, deliberately deployed. Yeah. Um, I have problems though, and uh-huh. we've talked a lot about what we what we like, and and particularly the way it's shot, yes. and and the the way it feels. Mm. I suppose. I mean, I think it's it's incredible visual. Mm. filmmaking audiovisual filmmaking mm. I think we can agree on that and yes. it's beautiful but is it sort of too beautiful so what I'm, what, what kind of struck no. me <laughs> what kind of struck me what I was thinking about is it's the, it's the kind of film where you say we want to show the horrors of war no one ever shows the horrors of war and um you know kind of and, and you do get these things where you have the Vietnamese characters I say characters they they're not people with lines or names or anything like that yeah. who kind of run in on on conversations between uh, uh, American generals and so on and so forth on the beach, you know, carrying uh, an injured child, something mm. like that. You, and you just see them at the edges. And, but, and, and obviously, you know, you have the thing about the school being destroyed. But again, it's it. there is also a feeling of... of the... I don't want to say the nobility of the cause exactly, but of the nobility of the men. Well, so, you know, so like I say, those low angles that you see throughout make people powerful. Yeah, and make them inspiring see, to look at. I think this and, is part of the reason why the film is great, right? Because it's so sympathetic to you know the poor individuals who were drafted and who have been turned into like you know killing machines. Yeah, it never dehumanizes those people. Yeah, no, it doesn't. Uh, but it it's constantly critiquing the sadness, the futility, the horror of the war itself. I think it makes it attractive. Do, oh, I do not. Not to me exactly, but I think I think it conveys a certain feeling of like they want. So take Willard for example. Willard has been in Vietnam once before. He's done one tour. And although he is kind of reeling from those memories of it, it's not entirely clear that... You, know, you say it's PTSD, and uh, I'm sure it probably is to some degree, and you can certainly see it that way, but there's also a sense in which he wants to get back there. He talks about, you know, last, last the only words I said to my wife in years were, yes, I'll give you a divorce, he says right at the start. I mean, that's not the exact line, but that's basically what he says. Well, he leaves his wife... 
to go back to the jungle. He wants to return there. No, and actually, and, and does he have? Does he have? A, that's not my sense at all. Does he have an aim? Does he have a goal? You know what? He, what he does when he gets there, he says he's waiting for this mission. He hates being cooped up in that room at the start. He needs to get back into the jungle. It's not enough to be in Saigon. He needs to be in the fight again. And then when uh, when his assignment comes, he says something that's like, not my reading of it at "Well, all. When, when his assignment comes, he says something like, you know, what else was I going to do? I might as well do it.' Which is which is to, to say, like, so so who is he? What what does he want? No, so 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 that's the key thing. What else am I going to do? Because the thing is, you're introduced to him in the middle of this nightmare. He's stoned out of the, his gills, right? He's kind of doing these kung fu moves in the mirror." His body looks all bent out of shape and, you know, semi-destroyed. When the military police goes in, they think, he thinks they've come to arrest him, right? Whereas, in fact, they've come with a mission for him that he can't refuse. And so what else is he meant to do, right? So that's, I think, where they, what else am I meant to do? He's somebody who's, you know, suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome and who's got no place to go. Mm. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. But th- there is a sense in which you know ev- everyone else is not a character. Vi- and the thing is, it- it's clearly a film about war. It's is it a film about the Vietnam War? Really, it's set in Vietnam. Just no, I think it's very much about the Vietnam War. It's about war in general, but the Vietnam War in particular, of course. You know, and that's where I think is it set in a recognizable Vietnam? You know, well, well, how would, I mean, I wouldn't. Well, know the that, point right? is, it was it was shot in Philippines. <laughs> you know, so the thing well, is, you like, know, the, whether the Philippines looks like Vietnam, it, sh- it shows Vietnam to be, I think, rather like the the Conrad novel it's based on. It's it, it's it's a land of savages. You know, I mean, you have that you have the scene where um, they're throwing spears. Well, and the, and and the captain, uh, the chief rather, chief of the his name is chief, captain of the boats gets killed with a spear. Were they using spears in the Vietnam War? No, it's ridiculous to well, say so. No, no, no. I mean, that's a scene from the no, novel. But you're you're ignoring all of the projection, right? So in fact, the first thing that you see is you know what looks like a very civilized school, you know, with very well dressed teachers and very well dressed children, and that's you know where the where the air force goes in and just bombs it all at the very beginning. So it's true that the further up they go, the more they go into a wilderness that is both external and internal, right? And so, you know, kind of... And then you're, me- you're meant to go into Cambodia, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, now kind of were there primitive people, you know, native peoples in Cambodia like that? I mean, I don't know, you know. Uh, so well, and maybe I was talking this about is... before Cambodia, to tell the truth. I was talking about in Vietnam. It strikes me as a very unrealistic depiction of Vietnam. I, look, you know, it's obviously a dream imaginary of Vietnam... But nonetheless, the fact that it's Vietnam is clear. That's the whole point of the sections with the French people. Well, again, the French people, what they have to say, the, the guy who runs the place, I don't know his name, but the guy who kind of gives, he gives a kind of oral history of, of, of Vietnam. And he talks, about, he talks about Vietnam being started by the French, as if it hadn't exi- existed for a thousand years before that. No, but and the point kind of is, it, you know, they had colonised it. They had been in a, a war in Vietnam. They lost it. Right. You know, so and so there's kind of all of these analogies being made, you know, with what, you know, the French did there and how they were defeated and what the Americans are doing there. But obviously on a much larger industrial scale, because they have different technologies of guns and helicopters and 
rockets and things like that. Well, so, that's also so, not entirely accurate, though. The, the, um, the French were colonists. The Americans weren't there to colonise. They were there ideologically. No, but they fought... The, the, the French fought the war and uh, uh, the Americans took over from the French in uh, terms of, you know, the, mm. the, the Viet Cong. So, you know, the, it's, it is specifically about Vietnam. It's not about somewhere else. And, and that's why... That's what all those sequences... Uh, are about and actually it tells you some of the history you know kind of how the military in Vietnam was kind of disabused and dispirited because now they were getting kind of messages from munitions factory with like free the Viet Cong and you know and so on and so forth so it's not about somewhere else it's not about Japan no no it's not about somewhere else but it's it's it's, it's about Vietnam to the extent that it's set in Vietnam but it, it, you know, it's about in, the, it's about the, but in its determination to take the novel and set it in Vietnam, it turns Vietnam into this dark continent that I don't think it was, and I think is unrealistic. Well, um, the the war that Americans fought is dark, and that's kind of you know why that's being used for. I mean, you could make other analogies. You know, in some ways, it's also an imperial narrative. You know, and so is the Vietnam War. You know, America had no business being mm-hmm. there, yeah. right? But this is not about, you know, whether America had any business of being there or not. It's about the futility of that war, you know, and what it does to people and how it victimizes, you know, and the craziness of it and, and so on. So, um, you know, and about how, 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 and about the horror. So it's about all of those things, but its effects on America and Americans. That's just a yeah. given. You know, um, no, I know, but I th- I've still got a point. Yes, well, point taken. You know, and what happened? And what, what about right at the end when he's killed? Uh, you know, Colonel Kurt supposedly is, is become like a god to these people. Um, this is in Cambodia now, so I'm not talking about Vietnam exactly, but um, these people who are kind of painted up like these savages, these tribal people, and um, Willard kills Kurt. And emerges, and they are all too ready to lay down their weapons in front of him and, and worship him instead. But again, you know, I mean, that's like the. Uh, I mean, to me, that also has a kind of a logic. You know, you kill the leader, you become the leader, and the, the you know the thing is that he goes away. I mean, he, you know, if you wanted to make the film banal, then you would have had him just replace Kurtz, right? Which you know there is an analogy made between them, and he could easily have done. Right, kind of. That's what that's. I think that's what that scene is about. But no, he leaves. Yeah, but to me, it's about who those people are. Why? Why they behave that way? You know, it's very. It's it's it's. You know, the guy. The guy in charge is kind of above all. I don't know. I, it just rubbed me the wrong way. You know. I think it is banal. I mean, you know, uh, you say well, it could, it could see, be banal doing it that way. Well, I think it's banal the way they do it. Ah, well, it's, I don't think so. Yeah. I I I disagree. And again, you, uh, and you are ended up with you do end up with this thing of who is Willard underneath. He's just an agent of the state, you know. To, but no, to you take don't get a sense that just that he's just an agent of the state. You, you get a sense that you know he's kind of as disturbed uh, a person and as lonely and alienated and you know as anybody else in the film. And actually, what you see is how the war affects kind of you know people differently, and they're all on edge, except admittedly him. Yeah, Willard. You never see him go completely mad. No. Um, well, no. Well, I, I wasn't going to say word. I was going to say mad. I was going to say sort of out of control. It doesn't ever seem to be out of control. 
Mm. You know, because I was going to... Because um, when you said he's the only one who doesn't, I was going to mention uh, Kilgore, the, mm. you know, the crazy general at the start, who is clearly kind of mad. Yes. But uh, also is totally in control of himself. That's knows right. exactly what he wants. Yeah. Um, uh yeah. Yes, he, yeah. I mean, he's so, like a, he's like a sort of Doctor Strange love type character, isn't he? He is a bit, uh, maybe more than a bit, actually, but I don't know. Um, so the thing is, you know, that everybody ends up being destroyed by this war in this film, mm. uh, in different ways, uh, and the only two who survive are Johnson the surfer, you know, and it's his innocence, I think, really that preserves him. Uh, I mean, there's that wonderful scene where they're throwing arrows and he catches one, you know, and he makes his hat out of it, like, you know, kind of not really focusing on that they might kill him, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... And he becomes a participant and sort of amongst the, um, all those all those sort of tribal people at the yeah, end. Yeah, and he kind of... He has to be dragged know, out, actually. He doesn't, yes. he doesn't go with... Will I will I just take him by the hand and take That's him? That's right. To the so he's the one who, who who looks after the puppy, who holds the arrow, who's good with the children in the end, right? Mm. So you get a sense that you know he's managed to maintain his innocence really, uh, in in a way that kind of no one else has, and and that maybe that's why he's alive. Um, this is a film with depths that we haven't begun to explore. So you know there there's stuff about what the war does to all these kids. Uh, there's stuff about what they've left behind. Uh, there's stuff about them not even knowing what they're doing or who they're killing or why. You know, there's a moral things that are kind of rendered complicated. So, you know, that bit uh, when Lawrence Fishburne is so nervous that he ends up shooting at everybody, you know, kind of... Um, do you see him as a killer? Do you see him as an unethical, immoral person? Or is it just a nervous kid? Mm-hmm. And if he's just a nervous kid, he's nonetheless killed 30 other people whose lives also matter. So I think the film dramatizes these incredibly complex, you know, mm-hmm. ethical and moral problems. So I would not say it's banal. I didn't say it's all banal. I just meant at the end. <laughs> right, well. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just to, yeah, I was just talking about the end that you brought up uh, as there could have been a banal way to do it. Anyway. I mean, I think it's one of those films, I mean, the more I see it, just the greater I think it is. And... And, and I have to digest it, actually, because, you know, one of the things is, you know, you were talking about these images and I think actually kind of, you know, you experience them bodily or physically, you know, but the full significance of them, I think, you know, it's almost like I need more time to kind of process it, you know. So, for example, I mean, that play of light on uh, Willard's face, yeah, kind of you know, that I just thought it was so beautiful and so poetic and, you know, he's there and he's not there and he's illuminated, but, you know, the fog and the things kind of hide him, you know, kind of, yeah, it's mm. kind of, I think there's, there's, there's greater significance to all of that than I can articulate at the moment. It's a very pretty movie. It's more than pretty. <laughs> yeah, but it's mainly pretty, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, I mean, st- stunningly beautiful by any standards yes. and that is kind of the most striking thing about it to me you know, which is not to say that it's not striking in other ways but that is the thing that will stick in my mind well you'll you remember know, those, the, I the mean, compositions actually, and the colours and know, the shapes and all of that I saw it 40 years ago and some of the images I've carried you know, all my life so yeah. 
you know, you can't say that about many films. Um, and actually, I think this time around also, you know, like the evocation of war and all its craziness and horror and so on. I mean, this is just gobsmackingly great. I mean, those things with Kill... Kilgore. Kilgore. Kilgore, yeah. What a you name. know, where there are helicopters flying, you know, and there's cows being raised to the sky, you know, and there's bombs being dropped a foot from him and he doesn't move an inch and he's shouting orders and cracking jokes, right? And people are surfing. I mean, you get that whole sense of the madness and the danger and the destruction, you know, of the war all kind of happening within one shot. It's just, it's just uh, mm. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you get a chance to see it, do. <laughs> Seems to be doing the rounds. Well, yeah. actually, I, was, I suppose it must be doing the rounds because it's a it new, is doing the rounds. new release. Um, um, I didn't catch it because, you know, and this is. Uh, um, it was playing in Bologna in the Piazza Maggiore because this is a restored version. Um, and so, and I missed seeing it on a really huge screen, which I would have. I now can kick myself for not having done it, you know. Yeah. It's kind of, it's one of those films that you say, oh, there's so much playing at Bologna that, you know, you take the, and you know this would come around, so you take the opportunity of seeing it elsewhere, but then you forget that you're not going to see it in the same conditions. And I would have loved to have seen it on that huge, you know, Piazza Maggiore screen that they have uh, in Bologna. It did but, have IMAX screenings in August. Yeah, I mean wow. that would have been amazing. I think it was because this this restoration is taken from the original negative mm. um, at four K. Yes, which is why it looks so incredible. Yes, imagine what it would look like on that massive screen. I mean, remember when we saw Lawrence of Arabia on on the big IMAX screen, the proper IMAX the screen proper that, that IMAX, Birmingham yeah. used to have. Yeah, in Millennium um, Point, it was incredible. Oh. And it actually made me think of Lawrence of Arabia as well, as I mentioned to you part way through the film. The thing about screen direction in Lawrence of Arabia. It's left to right, always left to right until mm. they until they go back and then it's mm. right to left. And in this, it struck me that so often when you see the boats going down the river, mm. it's a right to left direction mm. and it's not opposed to anything. Mm. It's not like they then go left to right, and it's not and it's not consistent either. I think you know there are times when it's not, but it just struck me that that is kind of the dominant thing. It's like yes. right to left reads as going backwards, going mm. into darkness or whatever. Mm. In this, mm. you know, yeah. It's also interesting, there's a progression of light. Because, you know, the further up they go, you know, and the closer they get, the darker and darker that the film be- becomes. Mm. You know, just in, you know, just in terms of intensity of light. Um, until you get to those scenes with Kurtz, where, you know, the film is almost dark, except maybe for a sliver of his bald head, or, you know, his fingers, or... Yeah, it kind of it picks out almost parts of his body, but everything is kind of in the dark until then his face is revealed, you know. And and so those scenes are the are the darkest in the whole film, literally, yeah, mm. as well as psychologically and so on, and in all sorts of clever ways. <laughs> it's a film. Yeah, I'm glad I saw it, and um, you know, I think some of my I think some of my criticisms they're not without foundation, but I think they apply just more generally to American film about Vietnam as a whole. I well, think. you like, know, there's a whole history of that. I mean, the only film, that, well, maybe the only film that had any impact uh, about the Vietnam War until the spate of films in the late 70s was the John Wayne film. Um, what's it called? Uh, where, you know, you can imagine John Wayne winning the Vietnam War. <laughs> <laughs> the Green Berets. Yes, the Green Berets. 
right? And so it's a thing that American cinema basically couldn't cope with, yeah. right? Um, and then kind of, you know, but again, you know, coming home is about the effects on veterans who come home, yeah, and they have no limbs. Uh, um, the deer hunters, you know, but again, it's an effect on Americans. Uh, then later on, you'll have Born on the Fourth of July, which is about a particular person who came back in a wheelchair and the effects on him. Uh, um, I think, in fact, he was the spur of coming home. Uh, then there's the Brian De Palma film uh, with Charlie, uh, with, um, uh, was it something of Casualties of War? And then there's the Oliver Reed film uh, with Charlie Sheen, right? So then into the 80s, that period from about 1978 till about like 1986, you have a whole spate of uh, um, Vietnam War films. And actually, I don't think any of them is Oliver as great Reed. as this one. Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone, sorry. Platoon, wasn't it? Platoon, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, I, was, I, was just, I was looking at it going, Oliver Reed did a Vietnam film. Sorry, my mind wanders <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oliver Stone. Um, so, and I think yeah. for me, you know, and they all deal with Americans, obviously. Uh, uh, but to me, this is the greatest. Yeah, I suppose it's the first time it's ever really occurred to me. And I think it's because of the... I think it's because of the adherence as well to to the novel, which was you know had this had this thing about savages. Yes. Um, that the film adheres so closely to that, and then I was going, but this does not add up with what Vietnam was like, and that made me think more sort of widely. I think about it, but I mean, we we notice that we notice it in the same way when American movies do think do things about um, about uh, World anyway. War Two and yes. well, but yeah, we didn't notice in World War Two when when actually the know, Brits are no better. You know, well, I was going like, to I was going to get you know, on to say we won the war single handedly. I was going to go on to say that, the, the, uh, that we do it as well. But, you know, it always just got me in, in Saving Private Ryan at the end when it's American flag at the end. It's like, I like this movie. Don't make me hate it right in the last frame. Well, you know. I know. Anyway, uh, highly, highly recommend uh, that you mm. see it uh, on a big screen uh, in as good a version as you can and with as good a sound system as you can. The sound is spectacular uh, in, in this film. Uh, and, and, you know, the, some of the images, I mean, as I said, you know, I saw it 40 years ago and some of the images have stayed with me for 40 years. Uh, and actually kind of seeing it again now, I think it's even more beautiful than I remembered it being. I liked it a lot. And, um, yeah, it's very, really, really good experience. And I liked it. And All right. That's as simple as I can. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. We're eavesdropping at the movies. And we are on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube to listen to us. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter at Eavesdrop Movies. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye bye. <laughs>